Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here. And um, I'm glad to add my word of welcome to what Elena's already said. We are continuing our series this morning in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And this letter is known as 1 Corinthians. Paul kept in close touch with the church he started in Corinth, which was a bustling, wealthy, cosmopolitan city. And this letter is a response to a letter that they had sent him and to reports that he had heard about them. And today we are concluding our third week in chapter 7. This chapter considers themes of singleness and marriage, and today's passage has a particular focus on singleness. And though I have spent 64% of my life as a single person, before we go any farther, I want to acknowledge that both myself and the preaching team are all straight and married, and we recognize that that is a limited vantage point to enter this discussion. But I did some research, and turns out you can just take a quiz to find out if you should stay single or get married. And being that this is an AGM Sunday and we need to keep this short, I thought, well, if we could just take that quick quiz, that would save us a lot of time. So uh, here's one. Ugh. Yeah, that looks a little threatening. Um, let's try another one. Yeah, that seems really predictable. Um, okay. This looks like it's got some potential. Let's just take a look. What questions are going to help us know if we should stay single or get married? It's a lazy Sunday afternoon. You have no work to do. What do you decide to do? Okay, how about another question? Which career would you rather pursue? Where would you live? This is, sounds pretty scientific. Okay. How would you describe your personality? I think I see where they're going with this one. Okay, next question. What is your favorite color? Okay, I think, I think we'll say blue for this one. And what, what was our result? What did we get? Oh, okay, we should get married. You are ready to be in a committed relationship. You are ready to spend the rest of your life with someone who makes you happy. Okay, but I want to try something, a little experiment here. What if we had said black instead of blue? What would have happened? Oh, ooh, shoot. Okay, that's, that's a, little, a little depressing. Okay, so maybe the quiz isn't going to cut it for us this morning. And even though I'm coming from a married perspective, the good news is the Apostle Paul was single. So let's take a look at what he has to say. Would you join with me in prayer? God, I thank you that you know all things and you are Lord of all. And we thank you that you have inspired Paul with your word to help us to know how we might live well, how we might live in a way that seeks to know you and to be known by you. And so, God, as we look at this passage, uh, maybe even an unusual one for us to consider, I pray that you would help us to understand more of what you have for us, of what a relationship with you might look like. And more than just understanding, would you lead us into experiencing that with you? For we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 25 to 40, and I encourage you, if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, to both have it out now, but we'll keep referring back to that passage, so it'd be great if you had that with you this morning. Now about virgins, how's that for an opening line? I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. <laughs> For those that didn't hear that at home, there were some knowing chuckles with that line. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For in this world, its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone's worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and, is, and if his passions are strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who's made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The Word of the Lord. <laughs> so as we read this, perhaps a few questions stood out. They certainly did for me. So the first one is, why remain single or married. That's kind of the first instruction that's given. Why this remain? The second one is why is not marrying better, but he who does not marry her does better. And related to that, for the woman, why is she happier if she stays as she is? So those are the framework or the lens that we're going to be exploring this passage through this morning. Now, it's important to remember that the default position of the culture was to be married. Jews glorified marriage and considered it a sacred duty. According to Jewish tradition, the only valid reason for not marrying was to study the law. The church in Corinth was made up of Jews, Greeks, Romans, and people from all kinds of various countries. And the default was marriage. There were social, cultural, and legal pressures to marry or remarry, and it was often only the poorest who were not married. So Paul's advocation for singleness here is very countercultural. One of the things Paul seems to be responding to is said at the beginning of chapter 7. He seems to quote them saying, Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There was a Greek idea that separated body and spirit. 
And this led to a kind of thinking that you could either do whatever you wanted with your body, it doesn't affect you spiritually, or, as seems to be the case for some in the Corinthian community, you need to stay away from anything physically sexual, even in marriage, as it would take away from your spiritual purity. And Paul is countering both of these ideas throughout this chapter. So back to our questions. Why does he say it is good to remain as you are? Married if you're married, single if you're single. This has been his consistent message throughout this chapter. Paul clearly expresses value for both singleness and marriage. He further clarifies being married or getting married is not a sin. His call is in part one to be content and grateful for the particular gifts of your current situation. Now, as we've said before, this call to remain is not speaking about staying in a situation of abuse. That is one aspect of divorce that we will be talking about next week. But in general, Paul's opinion is to remain. Now, is this bad news for single people who would like to get married? No. He covers that a few verses later. Getting married is okay. In Ephesians, he even uses marriage as a metaphor for our relationship with Jesus. He also says, I'm not saying this to restrict you, or more literally, to tie a noose around your neck. This is not meant to choke you, and getting married can be the right decision. But that takes us back to our other two questions. Even though Paul says it can be right to get married, in the same breath, he says, he who does not marry does better. And speaking about widows, he says they are happier if they do not remarry. Now, this Greek word that gets translated as happier, makarios, also means blessed. I don't think happy is necessarily the best translation, though they might be happy. But makarios, or blessed, has the connotation of being right on, in sync, in alignment, right where you are meant to be. Okay, but what does Paul think is in sync? in alignment, blessed about being single. Well, the first reason Paul says that he recommends people stay single is to spare them distress, as some of you might be familiar with. Those who marry will experience distress in this life or in this flesh. Well, we've all heard the stats. Each marriage is just about as likely to end in divorce as not. The word that Paul uses for distress means a pressing, pressing together, pressure, oppression, affliction, tribulation, anguish, burdened. I'm glad Paul's not writing Hallmark wedding cards. <laughs> <laughs> but if he were, it might be something like this. Congratulations, may you experience less distress in your marriage than you probably will. We can go to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose independence from God, they're told right away that one of the consequences will be distress in marriage, a power struggle between them. In Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, that a couple of our small groups have been reading, she says, in one sense, human marriage is designed to disappoint. Another good wedding card. <laughs> but she goes on to say, that it leaves us longing for more. And that longing points us to the ultimate reality of which the best marriage is a scale model. Meaning that the longings that are not fulfilled in our own marriages point us to the ultimate fulfillment found in Christ. They are a taste 
of what's to come, but never fully satisfy in and of themselves. This has been a refrain echoed these past few weeks. It's a lie in our culture that if we can just find the right person, we will be fulfilled and satisfied and all will be well, happily ever after. One of the ways that we can push against this lie is to have meaningful relationships between people who are married and people who are single, where each shares about their own joys and struggles. Some of my friends who are single have commented to me that us sharing about the pain and struggle of our fertility challenges has actually helped them realize it's not just all better on the other side. And one of the gifts my friends who are single have offered me is a growing gratitude for what I do have. Relating with people across difference develops both empathy for one another, but also helps us appreciate what we have. But when relationships stay superficial, and we don't really understand one another, it can be easy to think the grass is greener on the other side. If only I had the freedom that single person does. Or, oh, I wish I could go back to that early dating stage. That was more fun. Or, I would be so happy if I could just be married. Paul wants to save people who are single the distress of what happens when two imperfect, self-interested people are supposed to be forged into one. Some might say, I'll take that distress over the distress of being alone. Fair enough. Paul makes room for that. Let them get married. We just need to keep in mind, it's not what our culture says. Remember on that bogus quiz, along with the super flowery photo, it says you're ready to spend the rest of your life with someone who makes you happy. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. Not to mention the horribly disparaging photo with you should not get married, this depressing, depressing depiction of singleness. Paul is saying the opposite about marriage and singleness. He might even reverse those photos. The second appeal that Paul makes is to have a perspective on the time that we have. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Okay, Paul just said to remain as you are, stay married. Why is he now telling them to live as if they were not? Well, he's offering this kingdom perspective, a different way of looking at something. He's reminding them that the things that seem so important right now and consume our attention and efforts will not last, are passing away. He's saying there is work to be done, important work, and a short time to do it. He's not saying forget your family. He is saying make sure your devotion to God is most important and serving your family comes from that. This is also where we remember this passage is not intended just for people who are single. There is something significant for all of us in here. Some commentators argue about whether Paul's reference to the time is short or the world is passing away implies that Paul thought Jesus would come back soon meaning that he was saying something like, well, Jesus is coming back really soon, so don't bother to get remarried. But people over the ages have disagreed about the end times and how much time we have left. It doesn't really change the mission of God's people. We all have a relatively short amount of time, and Paul is convinced that there is important work to be done, that setting our sights on what matters, 
unhindered devotion to the Lord above all else is most important. We don't have much of a category for suffering in our culture. It feels like something must be wrong if we suffer. I am not good at embracing suffering. I rail against it. And when I say a category for suffering, I'm not talking about asceticism or suffering for the sake of suffering. But we generally think we have a right to get what we want, and why would we deny ourselves? The idea of giving something up for Lent, the season we're in now, is not about checking off some religious box, but exercising these muscles of discipline, of not having things just because you can. It's not about chocolate or TV, but about perspective on what matters. Now, the church has often had a category for what the single person must give up, sex apart from marriage, but without ever talking about what the rest of us are being asked to go without. This passage doesn't let us get away with that. Paul asks us to think differently about our marriages, our relationships, our money, our possessions, the things we buy, the things we want, the things we work for, even whether or not we are happy or sad right now, to think about all of these things from a different perspective, from a perspective of what really matters, which he says is unhindered devotion to God knowing God and being known by him. That's it. One commentator gave this paraphrase of what Paul's saying. But though I counsel none to change their state, meaning their marital status, I do counsel all to change their attitude toward all earthly things. As we've said before, our idols, or things that get in the way of our love for God, are a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, or the most important thing. Paul is saying, don't let that stuff get in the way, whether you are married or single. Unhindered devotion is not some heavy rule that must be followed to be more religious. Paul says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This isn't a lousy salesman selling you some expensive junk. This is like reading the instruction manual for how we operate best. I know not all of us are a fan of instruction manuals. But our creator God made us and made us to know him and be known by him, to relate to him. And he's helping us know how to live. He's not a mean king punishing his subjects. He's a loving dad taking care of his kids, showing them what will be best for your own benefit, for the best way to live unhindered devotion. In this last section, Paul says that married people have many concerns for their household, their family, and pleasing their spouse. There's lots to think about. But an unmarried person has less of those complications in their life and can be more concerned about the Lord. Paul's ultimate goal, though, whether married or single, is unhindered, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why he said what he did in the last section— Live with the Lord as your priority above all else. Let all else pale in comparison to your devotion to him. Whether you're married or single, he just thinks it's less complicated to do that if you're single. For those whose hearts sink when you hear that and feel some kind of guilt that you should stay single, again, Paul says it's okay to get married. That can be good. But he is subverting the preference given in his culture and ours that being married is better. 
It's pretty radical, really, as the whole structure in the ancient world centered around the family unit. But again, married or single, what Paul is really going after is undivided devotion. The word for devotion means literally sitting constantly by. Sitting constantly by the Lord. Sitting constantly by Jesus. Paul says, now that is really living. Well, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for people who are single? What does it mean for us as a church community? What does it mean for all of us? Well, for people who are single, the invitation is to ask God what he might have for you. If it's to be single, then how will he meet you in that? If your desire to be married might one day be realized, how can you live well now with where you are? When I was younger and heard about the gift of celibacy, I think I held up an umbrella going, please no, please don't give me that one, Lord. Well, first of all, that might be a good indication that I didn't have that gift. And second, we have to trust that it really is a gift, that it will be for our good, that we can live incredibly fulfilled, meaningful lives. Paul suggests perhaps even more so than our married friends. But Paul assures us there's nothing wrong with getting married if that's your desire. So what about for people who long to be married, who don't think they have been given the gift of celibacy, but have not found someone to marry? I don't have any easy answers. I get the pain of unanswered prayers and longings. I'm reading a really helpful book right now called God on Mute by Pete Gregg that I recommend. I think God delights in us naming those desires before him. The desires for partnership, companionship, intimacy, they are not wrong or bad. And you can ask him to allow those desires, even as you wait, to draw you closer to him and ask him to fulfill those desires in him. But I'm going to be honest and say that it's easy to say, but it can be hard to experience. For many, it doesn't just magically feel like, oh, I'm so happy my desires are met in the Lord. I'm not sure what to say other than that I think there is something good in going back to him again and again to look to him as your source of joy and hope and fulfillment. And that's for all of us. Ask others for stories of how God has been faithful to them. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, things not always seen or experienced. But he promises to hear us and never leave us And we can hang on to that even as we wait for that ultimate fulfillment. So what does this mean for our church community? Well, according to a CBC article from 2019, single-person households are the most common type of household in Canada. StatsCan says that the number of people living alone has more than doubled in the last 35 years. So the first place to start is if our church stats do not reflect the demographics of our society, we might ask ourselves, are we prioritizing and valuing families over single people? And if so, how much wisdom, leadership, devotion, and relationships are we missing out on? What are the ways that we are biased more towards families or couples or give preference to people who are married? Are people who are single overlooked for leadership, for dinner invitations? How are we missing out because we lack relationships with people with a different marital status from our own? 
What are the assumptions that people who are married make about people who are single? That marriage is God's plan for every individual, so they must need our help to help them find someone? That someone's not happy and fulfilled and also single? Or perhaps that someone older has given up on finding a partner? We would do well to examine these assumptions, and the best way, once again, to overcome them is getting to know one another in meaningful relationships. Paul places such a high value on singleness that we must figure out how to be a vibrant community of people who are single and married. A number of years ago, one couple in our church learned that a woman who was a recent widow and was really struggling with the loss of her husband and loneliness. So they invited her for dinner, but not just for one dinner. She came for dinner once a week for years. She knew that every Wednesday night she had a place at their table, And though the couple did it to care for this woman, they would be quick to tell you what they received from this arrangement. The invitation doesn't have to start with years, if that's daunting, but it needs to start somewhere. The key for us all, undivided devotion. That's it. That's what Paul is ultimately aiming for, whether married or single. How are you constantly sitting at the feet of Jesus? Are you experiencing life as we were intended to live? And if not, what's getting in the way? Is it prioritizing a relationship or longing for a relationship? Is it dwelling on what you don't have? Is it just busyness and the demands of day-to-day life that keep your gaze short-term? First of all, you can ask God to show you if you're not sure, and then ask him to meet you. There's a reason that we hang on to these things. We all want to be loved to know we will be taken care of, that our needs will be met, to enjoy pleasure. Ask God how he is meeting those needs. Don't see those desires as something that just must be vanquished, but rather as clues to what is going on in your heart and likely how God wants to meet you. If you follow Jesus, you follow a God who laid down his life and rose again in the fullness of life. And when he invites us to follow him, we are invited to also lay down the parts of our life that won't last, to receive the fullness of life that he intended. This is for our good. May we believe that. Let's pray. Lord, you invite us to sit at your feet. And Paul tells us that's for our benefit. That's the best way to live. But so often that's not where we are. We are way more concerned about other things, and honestly, sometimes when we've tried to sit at your feet, we've been disappointed. So I pray that you would meet us now wherever we are, that you would help us see what is getting in the way of life with you, and in your mercy and grace, would you lead us to let go of the place that those things have in our life and to sit with you? For we ask this in your name. Amen.